Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. 2 Corinthians 11. So just a quick preamble before we get into it. Paul has been, over the last two chapters, addressing his critics. He went to the city in Corinth. He planted a church during one of his missionary journeys. He left, and a group of folks came in and started critiquing his ministry style, the way he did stuff, the way he taught. And they did it really uh, in a sneaky way, too, because they, they would come in and it, there was a whole lot of this, uh, um, yeah, 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 Paul's okay, but there's a couple things he's not really that great at, therefore he's not a qualified leader. But lucky for you, we're here. We've got these long resumes full of all of our credentials, and if you just give us your ear, we'll show you an even better Jesus that Paul did. And word that this is starting to trickle back to Paul. He's, he's gotten, he's caught in word of this, uh, caught word of this, and um, he's extremely upset. And so what he's been doing over the last couple of chapters is he's been addressing those critics. And he does it in a really creative way. He'll, he'll bring up some of the things that he knows that they've been saying about him in his letters and in his responses. And so he does that in uh, chapter 11. He did it in 10 and he's gonna continue to do it in 11. So um, that's what's happening in 11. We're following the critiques that these critics have been giving uh, his way, but also the way that he responds to them. And why is this important? Uh, Why is this valuable to our life? Because the way that he chooses to respond to his critics, I think should inform the way that we choose to respond the world when they start critiquing us. Because there's a way in your heart that you think is right when it comes to responding, but then there is a way that the Word of God teaches us is proper and right as a disciple of Jesus. And those two are almost never the same. So today I want our hearts to buckle, to give in, and let the Lord have His way as we study how Paul responded to his critics. Amen? All right, so let's get into it. This is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's start off in verse 1. So 11.1 says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. That's interesting. That's not typical Paul, right? Paul didn't have time for foolishness. But he's been spending a lot of time listening to the foolishness of these critics. And he says, you know what? If the only thing you're going to listen to is foolishness, I got a little foolishness too. She says, I I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Please do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. That's what he calls his critics. 
super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul starts off chapter 11 saying, look, I want you to indulge me a little bit. You've got an appetite for listening to foolishness, so so let me try my hand at it. And what he does when he introduces the chapter that way is he essentially says, look, um, these guys that have come in, they're coming with their, their flowery language and they're constantly talking about like not just what they're saying but how well they're saying it. So let me lay some analogy on you. Let me, let me help you understand how I see our relationships. Maybe you can understand why I'm so jealous for you as a church. I see my role, this is what Paul is saying, as kind of like a matchmaker. I set you up with Jesus. And things were going really well. Like the first date went really well. Like it, it, was, it, it was promising. And then the relationship advanced and things were good and I was really excited for you. And, and the church, in Paul's language, often in the New Testament is referred to as the bride of Christ. So there's this, there's this understanding that we as a people of God are supposed to, in a way, be married to Jesus. That's kind of the eternal payoff. What, what did Jesus, when he went through this internal punishment and uh, this, he went through this series of punishment and then uh, resurrection and he comes back, like what, it, what, is, what is some of the things that he gets in the relationship, in the deal, in the covenant that was cut? Well, he gets us. He redeemed us unto himself. He gets us. He gets a bride, right? And that's why it's so important for us as the bride to be spotless because one day we're going to be presented to the groom. He's Jesus. And you don't want to be one of those girls who was cheating on your fiance. And that's what Paul says. I'm going to use a crazy analogy to help you understand what you're doing here. And what you're doing is I set you up with Jesus and you got engaged and things were going good. And now I find out that you're dating some other Jesus. You're spending your time flirting with a different Jesus than the one you're engaged to and you're pretending like it's him. That's what he means by the foolishness. I'm going to give a foolish illustration to help you understand how foolish you actually look. So he's illustrating this parable, and it sounds wild, but it actually works because it's teaching this church that they, they, they're, they're chasing a different Jesus. They're chasing a different gospel message. They're embracing some different spirit. And Paul says that all of these things are exactly what happened to Eve in the garden. And what he means by that is when Satan wanted to ruin God's creation, he couldn't challenge God head on. He didn't have that kind of power. You don't take God head on. And Satan knew that. So what did Satan do instead? Satan challenged Eve's relationship with God. How do you sow dissension among God's perfect creation you challenge the relationship between him and his creation. You sow seeds of doubt in the minds of the creation, and you say things like, did God actually say that? Well, he did, maybe, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but, but, if, but if he did, you know why he did it, right? Because he's holding things back from you. Did God say obey in this area? Did he really say that you couldn't do this thing? 
Isn't this the argument that we kind of have in our own life? Like, well, yeah, and it says here, but like, I don't know if that really applies here. Maybe it doesn't. No, it, it certainly does. You know it does, and you're trying to find a loophole so you can do what you want, which is why Christ had to die in the first place. So what Satan did when he came to Eve is he challenged the relationship with God, and he said, is your relationship really that good? Does he really love you that much? Should you really give him that much trust? You know he's holding things back from you. Paul said what happened in the garden is the same thing that's happening in this church. Now the bad news is that, well the bad news and the good news, is that Satan hasn't changed his tactics in all these years. He's still doing the same thing in church people that he did in the garden. Now it's bad news because it would be nice to live without that, but it's good news that we know what the tactics are and we can work against them. Because when you know how the enemy is going to attack, you can make provision for that specific attack. And this is exactly what Paul is saying is happening in the church. It's exactly what happened in the garden and it's exactly what happens in our life. The truth is that Satan, he does not care if you obey Jesus as long as it's the wrong Jesus. He has no problem. He, he doesn't want you to bow down in Satan worship. That's not what he's after, right? He's not after like you putting pentagrams on your forehead and dressing in all black. Like that's not his end game. His end game is to allow you to be as devoted and as sold out as you possibly can be to the wrong Jesus. His end game is to challenge in your mind, because we learned last week that the battlefield starts in the mind, to challenge in your mind what God says about himself with ideologies, ideologies and worldviews from this world. He wants to combat and challenge the way that you walk out obedience by first addressing and sowing doubts in your mind. That's how he works. And Paul is saying this is what's happening in the church. It's what's happening in our church today. In fact, this is one of the warnings that he gave Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.3, when, when Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, saying, hey, now you're becoming a pastor of this church, and here's a couple things you should be mindful of. It's this long section in 2 Timothy 4 where he essentially says, look, here's what your job is. Preach the gospel. Preach Jesus. Give him the good news. Well, in that um, a string of encouragements. This is what he says in 4.3. He says, the time is coming, this is Paul saying to Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The main idea being is that there is no shortage of teachers selling you the wrong Jesus. So as a believer, you need to care less about who's talking and more about what they're saying. That's what Paul is saying. And if there was ever an important message to us, that's the one for today. Because inside the church and outside of the church, we are easily deceived and easily um, deaf to the things that are being said, because man, they just come in some of the prettiest packages. And you will buy things just because of the package. The idea 
that we would surrender, that we would trade in our own desires, that we would forsake. That's the gospel message. But what's being preached here, what was preached in the garden, what's being preached in many churches today, is this, there's, there's no forsaking. You don't have to forsake anything. You can bring everything that you are with you. The idea that your relationship with God is based off of what is he to you, not what you are to him. That's the story of this book. Where do you fit into the story? Because it's his story. But that's not what's sold by people who have itching ears and hire people to tell them what they already want to hear. That message is, what is he to me? What can I take and what can I let go? What is of value and what is of no value that I can let go? That's not the message of this book. The message of this book is, come on, and then die. Come on, now die. And unfortunately, that's not what is preached enough. So lots of people are convinced, well, I came and now I'm gonna live. Well, the living comes after the dying. There's a resurrection thing that's gotta happen first. So you don't come and live your greatest life ever. You come and then you die and you're resurrected into a new life and that is the one that is the greatest one ever. You follow? So this is what Paul is saying. These guys have come in and they've undercut my message with some pretty disgusting things and you guys are buying it in bulk. So let's go to verse seven. He says, 2 Corinthians eleven seven. 7. It says, um, or do I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? See, I robbed other churches by accepting support for them in order to serve you. Now, he's not saying I actually like at gunpoint robbed other churches. You remember how he started this chapter? He says, indulge me in some foolishness. He's being um, hyperbolic in his language. Um, he's being really dramatic in the way he's talking to illustrate a point of how ridiculous some of their accusations against him are. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will, and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the, reasons, in, in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. That's another accusation as Christ we're making. He doesn't really love you. If he was, he'd be here. Am I doing all these things because I don't love you? No, of course I love you. What, am I, what I am doing right now, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false, this is, this is really important, look at, look at how it references this. For such men, these guys, these critics, he called super apostles earlier, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, ooh, that stings, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 
So Paul continues his uh, response, but he references something that if you don't have the context for, you might get lost in. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, we learned that Paul, when he came to plant Corinth, he refused any payment from the church. He would not take their money. Now that was an issue in this culture because in Roman culture, um, orators, people who came into your town and spoke, um, it was commonplace for them to get paid. But beyond that, the vocation of an orator was not just something that somebody picked up because they couldn't do any other trade. In order, an orator or public speaker was viewed as the, at the same level um, as people who were in government or people who, had, um, who were unbelievably skilled in a specific trade. And they spent many years training and sharpening their skills. And so the outward expression of being an orator in this culture was highly valued. So these orators would come into a town and they would speak in the public square and um, wealthy patrons in the town would say, hey, come come and speak at my dinner party. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Or, or let me set up a, uh, an event over here uh, in the downtown square and, and we'll have you and we'll sell tickets or you know, Friday night and we're gonna come and I'm gonna, I'm gonna front you the money. Um, the, the purpose being that the wealthy orators would cover the cost, or excuse me, the wealthy patrons would cover the cost of the orators. So somebody who was good at speaking would come into town and the wealthy among them who valued art and communication would, would make sure these guys got paid. Right? They, were, they were traveling TED talkers. That's basically what it was. And people loved it, just like they love it today. The problem is that when Paul came to town, he refused all of their money, and that really upset the social structure in a big way. Because essentially what he was saying was, I'm not gonna follow your rules and do things your way. What I'm preaching requires something completely different. It requires you to think differently, even, even down to the economy level of how my needs are met. So I'm not taking any of your money. And to the church, that was highly offensive, which is why Paul brought it up in his first letter. Here's the reason why I did that. And he brings it up in this letter too. The reason why he did that was to remove that weird thing in a relationship that how when you start paying somebody, there's a little bit of, a, there's a little string of manipulation tied to it. That once you start, once, you, once there's money tied to a transaction, there's some way to kind of pull the string. And Paul didn't want any manipulation. He didn't want the accusation of it. And he didn't want the message to get watered down in this new town because the wealthy people were paying for it. And here's what's ironic. This is exactly the critique that these guys are, are making about him, but it's exactly what they're doing. They came into town, they started speaking, they started taking money, and they started using that money to leverage change in this church. And Paul is saying, they're doing the exact thing I told you would happen, which is why I didn't take your money, and now they're using that as an argument for their case. Do you see how ridiculous this is? Like, just pause for a moment, how, how, how out, how, I don't even have words for this. This is, like, do you guys not see this? They're literally doing what I told you I didn't want to happen, and in not taking your money, they're using that as an argument against me. They're using my pastoral care and my love for you against me. Are you honestly following with these guys? 
Are you honestly on board? Are, are you, do you not see what they're doing? His critics are using this against him. And I think this is one of the reasons why Paul, in his response, first addresses them as super apostles as a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way. And then at the very end, he brings in a slam and he says, you know, I, I'm gonna be kind of silly about this. I'm gonna call them you know, super apostles because they're projecting themselves this way. But, but ultimately, let's go ahead and expose what's happening here. Their desire to wanna use my passion and my love for you against me to you there's only one dude in the universe who works like that. That's Satan. Satan does that kind of stuff. If we were really genuinely on the same team, you wouldn't be sowing seeds of division. You wouldn't be trying to put one pastor against another staff member or another pastor and try to uh, find ways that they're competing. And that, that's not how the kingdom works at all. And if that starts happening, guess who's behind the scenes pulling those strings? The same guy who was trying to ruin the relationship between Eve and Adam and God in the garden. That's what he does. He works with deception and his, fan, his, 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 his number one uh, go-to, the tool in his toolbox that he uses most often is sowing division by putting questions in the hearts of people. By sowing seeds, did, did, does he really love you? I mean, do you see the parallel in verse 11? And why? Because I do not love you? That's essentially what Satan challenged in Eve. He doesn't, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't want you eating of that tree because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to keep some glory for himself. Well, we, we know this guy. We know his tactics. This is what he's doing. But what's interesting here is this is not the first time that Paul has brought up Satan in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's going to bring him up again in chapter 12 when we discuss it next week in verse 7. But there's three other times just in this book that he has mentioned Satan. Now, that's not a typical uh, uh, kind of go-to for Paul. He's not referencing the kingdom of darkness and Satan a lot. But in this specific situation, he is. So I think we should kind of ears perk up and pay attention. Because what's happening here is in this book, he's calling out Satan. He's calling out the kingdom of darkness for being at work in this church and using men to, to further his kingdom. And if we kind of track the way that Paul addresses it, then we can start seeing how Satan works within the world. And if we're aware of the way that he works, then we can be aware of combating that in some of the ways that Paul tells us. So the first one was all the way back early. I think it was in like our second week. It was 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. I'll read it just for a refresher. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 10, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. What are his designs? His designs are um, that he, Satan, the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, likes weakening churches by encouraging unforgiveness. You go back, you track almost every church split that's ever happened in the history of the world, I guarantee you it goes back to a root of unforgiveness because that's what Satan does. 
You find two, two church people that were, that were really close at one time and now they don't want anything to do with you, or eat with each other, unforgiveness. Why? Because that's the one thing Jesus is preaching. Forgiveness. That's what he's all about. He hung on the cross because forgiveness. So Satan wants to combat that with the one thing that's opposite of that, unforgiveness. Don't, don't do that. Don't do what he did. Don't follow his pattern and his model and his steps. No, no, you do something different. You hold a grudge. Don't let go. Hold on to it. Before you know it, that thing that you're holding on to starts eating you on the inside. The second reference in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. He calls Satan the God of this world. He says, in their case, non-believers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what's another tactic of the enemy besides him weakening churches by um, encouraging unforgiveness? The enemy blinds unbelievers' minds from seeing Jesus. How does the enemy blind the minds of non-believers? He uses false ideologies. He uses YouTube influencers. He uses people on the news to tell you things that are not true. They challenge the very, the, the ability to be able to trust any actual truth so that no piece of information come your, coming your way, you can, you can actually trust as a valuable, credible, no, we can't trust anything. Well, when he does that in this world, what he does is ultimately this truth is gonna, it's gonna get to them one day. And if he has an entire generation who doesn't trust anything and questions everything, when this truth finally comes up, what do you think that the world is gonna do? Their mind has already been blinded with this ideology that I can't trust anyone, I can't submit to anything. The, 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 the church is out there to get me, God hates me, God's not real. These false ideologies blind the world, blind non-believers to seeing the truth of Jesus. So how do we, how do we combat that? We be the light in the world. For a person walking in darkness, how do they know what a light looks like? Well, they gotta see it. They have to see what it looks like for Jesus to genuinely have transformed somebody's life so that a person walking in darkness looks at a person that's walking in the light and says, all right, there's something different there. And I'm not just talking about like, they talk to their wife differently or whatever. I'm talking that like, there's, there's something, I can't put my finger on it. It's, it's not quite, it's like joy, but it's not, Exactly that. It's, it's kind of like kindness, but it's not, it's more than that. It's like they have a gentle way, but it's not, it's more than that. There's something deep on the inside that has gripped them and changed them. They're different. Please tell me what that is. But how many, how many folks we got like that? How many genuinely, completely sold out How many people do we have in the kingdom of God? Like Matthew 14, 33. They found a treasure in the field, they covered it up, and in their joy, they went and sold everything they had to go buy that field. How many, how many people? There's not many, and I count myself among the not many. Well, no, that's not right. I was pretty prideful. I count myself among those who uh, would be difficult to examine. Look, I tripped over my words, that sounded weird. <laughs> I'm not one of them. <laughs> like, I don't count myself among the sold out. There are still areas of my heart that are just like, 
yeah, that, that thing's really shiny and I kind of kind of want that, <laughs> right? You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? There's a part of me that I, I'll walk into a store and I don't get my way. I'm, ah, I want to be a Karen. <laughs> yeah, just me? All right. But, but there's a part of me that feels like I got to prove my point. I got to show you why I'm right, right? That has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. That's not light. That's not light in a dark world. That's more darkness in a dark world. So what do I want? To be right? To chase these things like some kind of zombie like the rest of the world? Or do I genuinely want to be different? Do I want my life to look like it was buried and then raised again? This is what Paul is selling, but it's the opposite of what his critics are selling. The third reference is here in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. He says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And that's the third tactic. The enemy deceives you and me by offering us a better offer. By offering us a different Jesus. And like I said earlier, that's, 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 that's the tactic. You don't have to stop going to church. You just gotta go to a bad church. You don't have to stop listening to messages. You just gotta listen to ones that aren't actually talking about Jesus. You don't have to forsake all this Jesus stuff. You just have to stay home and watch it on television. You don't, have to, you don't have to give up community, but when you're there, don't actually let anybody know who you really are. Make sure you keep up that wall. That's the invitation from Satan. Be known, but not that much. Not, not that known. Submit yourself, but not that much. Be sold out, but also own a couple things of your own. This is the offer of the enemy. You can follow Jesus until the cows go home, but make sure it's not that one. Just follow a different one. Follow one that looks like you, that sounds like you, that likes the music you like, likes the shows that you like, that doesn't actually expect any change or demand anything from you. Don't follow a Jesus like that. Follow a Jesus that looks like you, votes like you, talks like you, smells like you. Follow that Jesus. You'll have a much happier life because you'll never, nothing will ever be demanded of you. This is what's happening in this church and Paul's had enough of it. So Paul's looking at these guys and he sees their, he sees their agenda, he sees through what they're doing and he basically says, look, I see what's happening and I see Satan's fingerprints all over it. Let's go to verse 16. He says, I repeat, Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast for a little while. Now, this is interesting. The way he frames this can kind of get lost if you read it too fast. So I'm going to go back and explain it, just 16 through 20 here. But he's about to ramp up and just crank it up to 11. He says, "What, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. That's important. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, 
For you bear it if someone makes you slaves of makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. You put up with all that stuff, because that's essentially what these guys are doing to you. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. I'm not going to let these guys do that. So, essentially what he's saying is, I feel like in one of those conversations, have you ever ever been in those conversations uh, with somebody, and like all sense of reason has just disappeared? Right, it's 2020, we just had an election, you know what I'm talking about. You're talking with somebody and there's just no ground for reality. You feel like, like, like looking around like, seriously, am I the only, does no one see how obvious this is? I'm not one for personal stories, that's not really what we're doing here, but I think this illustrates the point. Recently I walked into a big box store to purchase a large ticket item and I walked into the store, they had the item, I said I wanted to buy it, and I was told I was not allowed to buy it because they were holding it for someone else. I said, okay, well, is the person, did they, they purchase it already and they're just waiting to come pick it up? Did they put some down payment? Oh no sir, they haven't actually bought it or put any money down on it, we're just holding it for them, it's store policy. All right, just made this clear. I'm here with money. Like right now, it's COVID, right? Y'all aren't selling a whole lot of stuff. You probably want to move product, right? I'm here right now with money. I want to leave with it. I got a truck. I'll, I'll leave with it right now. I'm sorry, sir. We can't sell you that because somebody else might come buy it. Well, that's the whole store, isn't it? Technically, I can't buy anything in this store because somebody is probably going to come buy it eventually, right? So, you, so you're telling me you won't take any of my money. That's why you exist. You know that, right? You're here to sell stuff. I'm here to buy stuff. Like, take my money. Sorry, sir, store policy, we can't. And I'm like, am I the, I'm, I must be nuts. The way I see things must be wrong. And afterwards, if you're like, you're like no, no, the, please explain that to me, because still to this day, I went and I bought it somewhere else, and I now got the thing, and I didn't need that store. But this is the situation Paul's in. He's in one of these moments where he's just like, I don't even know where to start with you people. Like if we had some basis, like can we all agree on this one thing? Yes, cool, then let's start building on this. No, we got nothing. Everything we agree on is completely wrong. I don't know how to even talk to you. So Paul says, all right, here's what I'm gonna do. You guys really like foolishness. These guys are telling you some ridiculous things. In fact, they're doing the opposite of what Christ, like, you know he washed people's feet, right? Like he got the creator of the universe, he got down on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. Like that's the opposite of boasting and bragging. You get that, right? But this is what these people are doing. They're coming in and letting you know, hey, I've done this and I've gone here and I've done this and I've achieved these things. And you're buying it. And you're convinced that it's the same thing that Jesus did. Like, in what way do you think that he was on his feet selling things to these people? It's the opposite. It's no way the same. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get down on your level. I'm going to be foolish with you. And I'm going to participate in this game of boasting and bragging. These guys love doing it. So I'm going to play along. All right. Now, what I want you to watch the way he plays because it's, it's beautiful. So these guys can't stop bragging. He says, look, 
with some confidence, I'm going to respond. I'm going to, I'm going to respond. Um, he gives a little disclaimer. This is probably important to, 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 to bring up. He says in verse 17, what I'm saying with this both full confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. So what I'm about to do, this is probably not what Jesus would do, right? So don't build sound theology off of this, but I have no other way to get across to you how ridiculous you look right now without getting down and being ridiculous with you. So you like boasting, you're into bragging, let's brag, let's see who wins. Verse 21, to my shame I must say, we were too weak for that, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, now remember guys, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? These guys coming in? So am I. Are they Israelites? Hey, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Now look, at this point, I'm talking like a madman. Here we go. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Are you done yet, Paul? Not yet, because apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety from all the churches. I've got a lot of anxiety because of you. Who is weak and, and, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and, 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 and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I'm going to boast of the things that show my weakness. That's important. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Look, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, and I was actually let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So what I want you to imagine is I want you to imagine Paul up here on the stage with one of his critics. We're the church of Corinth, and we, for some reason, have been led astray by this buffoon and now we have to listen to their boasting because in Roman culture, that's the way we judge who's worthy of our attention and our affection. Who's got a better resume? So Paul's here and these critics are standing here and the critic goes first and he starts speaking and he says, look, uh, he looks at Paul and he says, like, I've been more places than you. I went to college. I made more money last year than you. Um, I've got more Instagram followers than you. Uh, I've written more books. And he goes on and on and on and on. And as a Corinthian church, we're standing there, we're like, oh, <laughs> this guy's really got it. I've actually read some of those books and I do follow him on Instagram. And then Paul steps forward and he says, all right, my turn. I've been in prison more than you. <laughs> I've been beaten more than you. 
I've been shipwrecked and stoned more than you. I've gone without food more than you. I've slept more than you. I've regularly worried about this church more than you. Uh, In fact, one time I was let down in a basket just to escape the people who were after me. What Paul does by standing for, because typical Paul, he wouldn't even accept the invitation, right? Hey, Paul, will you come up on stage? No, I don't want to go on a stage. That's Paul. Will you come up on stage and, and, and tell us your credentials? What have you done? Why should we listen to you? You know, we've got this guy over here and he's talking about all these great things he's done. Don't you want to speak up? Now, typical Paul, he's like, no, I, I, uh-uh. it's all him. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. But at this moment, he says, you know what? I'll indulge you. And, and by doing this, here's what he does. He stands up here and by... Um, declaring, he, he does boast, but he boasts in something different. By doing what he just did, by standing forward and offering a boast just like these guys, he completely shifts the power structure in the room. He immediately, with his first words, when he says, I've been in, more, I've been in prison more times than you, I've been shipwrecked more than you, he immediately shifts the power structure and he devalues what this person values. This is really important in understanding how we live and respond as Christians in this world. Because our life right now looks more like Daniel and Babylon than some new Jerusalem. We are living in exile. This is not our home. So understanding how to live properly is important. And you are going to have value systems. It's not necessarily the bragging. There are some people who are pretty braggy, but but Christianity as a whole has had such an impact on the world over the last 2,000 years that it is not commonplace for a person to stand up and start bragging and people to be like, yeah. Most people don't want anything to do with somebody who brags. So people kind of like humble brag, or they, they drop names. But still, when you see it, you're like, man, it's kind of a turnoff. Well, that's an impact of the gospel. The gospel has done that to society over time. Because there was a time in history before Christianity wasn't prominent that that was a value. In the world, if you wanted to be somebody, you had to prove who you were, where you'd been, what you'd done. So that being a value at that period of time, there are other things where we live today that are also values that we need, to, we need to understand and we need to address. How do we address? We address in ways by not hiding, but standing up and projecting the values of the kingdom of God in a way that kind of reveals how ridiculous the value systems of this world are. Are you following me? That's kind of a hard concept, and I don't know exactly how it works out in every situation, but luckily that's why we have the Holy Spirit. We'd be lost without that but we've got the Holy Spirit residing inside of us, so we're not lost. There's not a moment where I don't know what to do. No, you know what to do, just listen, he'll tell you. So when Paul stands up and he says, yeah, you guys like boasting? This is the thing you do in your culture? I'll boast, I'm gonna boast in my weakness. This is my weakness, and here's why I'm gonna boast in my weakness. Because when I boast in my strength, Jesus gets lost. 
My strength overshadows what he's doing because strength is often a glory hog. All it does is say, it's like a magnet. It says, look at me, look at what I've done. All eyes right here, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right here. All your affections, this way, please. That's what strength does because People who are fallen and broken, man, we love strength. We love strength anywhere we see it. And the reason why is because we hate weakness in ourselves so much. I hate that I don't know how to do that. I hate that I can't sing. It drives me nuts. I'd love to be able to carry a tune. Not something that's been blessed in our family. Not not a thing in, in the Oaks house. Ain't none of us are singers. My apologies if I sit next to you in worship. We don't carry a tune in our home. But, but who, who decided that? Was it me? Was I just, would one say, well, I don't want to learn how to sing. No, no. I took voice lessons. I really wanted to learn how to sing. Wasn't in the cards. Who dealt the cards? Him. So in his wisdom, he decided, you're going to be weak in this area. I decided that. I wanted you to be weak in this area. Why? Because if you're strong in every area, no one will see Jesus. I want them to see my son, not you. And if you are gifted in everything and strong in everything, then you don't, you're pulling eyes off of him and you also don't need anybody else. You're an island. You succeed without the needs of anybody around you. And that's not how I want my church built. I want everybody in here to have strengths and weaknesses because the strengths further my kingdom but the strengths also have a way of kind of pulling affection towards yourself. So I'm gonna give everybody weaknesses too. There are some things in your life right now that you hate about yourself that God gave you and you've been praying for 20 years, God, take this away. And his answer every time is, nope, not taking it away. This is what Paul talks about in the next chapter, about this, this, this thorn in his side. There are things God's like, no. Paul's like, please take this away from me. No, no, because you need to understand that my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So here's the funny thing about reading through the last few verses of 11. Paul starts this section by saying, look, I'm gonna speak your language so you can hear. So I would not argue that his method here is what we should adopt. We, he, he's trying to be clever by bragging about weakness. And I, and I don't know that the, the takeaway is we should start getting on a steady diet of bragging about our weaknesses. I don't know that that's what Paul's trying to get us to learn. I think what he's trying to do here is trying to remind us that there is some value in your weakness. That boasting, bragging, it's not a thing in the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be low, not building ourselves up. In a culture where that's valued and you do have to step up and boast and brag, brag and boast about the right things, the weak things, but that's not our culture, so I don't know that this even really applies. But what is the takeaway from today? The idea that in God's kingdom, weakness is used for his glory. That's the takeaway. Paul is trying to help the church and us as a church understand that God in his wisdom gave you that weakness. You're weak for a reason. 
This book is filled with stories of men and women who were weak and God worked through them. The weakness removes any doubt that it was God's power and not yours. The weakness has a way of humbling us when we don't like being humbled. So when Paul boasts in his weaknesses, I think that this is an invitation for us to not start boasting, but to at least reassess our weaknesses. Look, there is no shortage of companies that would take your money to fix your weaknesses. But I think it's worth a conversation and prayer with the Lord. Are these weaknesses worth fixing? Now, I'm not talking about immaturity, and I'm not talking about sin. Those are different categories. If you're talking about sin in your life, buddy, you gotta take that seriously. You gotta get that out. That's not what we're talking about. If we're talking about areas where you were immature, where you're just unloving, where you're unkind to people, I'm not talking about, look, you don't just get to say, well, I'm just weak in loving people. I'm just not good at it. Talking to people, I'm just not good at it. Well, get good. <laughs> But there are things that are just genuine weaknesses that have nothing to do with like immaturity or sin. We're talking about like giftings that you're just not good at. Stop spending all your time looking at other people and saying, man, I just wish I was like them. I wish my family looked more like them. I wish I looked more like them. I wish I had their gift. I could really do something for the Lord if I could speak like them or sing like them or play like them or serve like them. There's a reason why you can't. It's because you have a different gift. You need to identify what that is and you need to use it for his kingdom. And you just start reassessing your weaknesses and stop treating them like things that need to be addressed and changed and start treating them like things that need to be embraced and loved because it's in your weakness where he is made strong. And that is the main message from today. The idea that we as people are convinced that strength comes from strength. It doesn't. In the kingdom of God, strength comes from weakness. His strength is perfected in your weakness. So maybe start resting in the weaknesses that God gave you so you can spend more time making Jesus lifted higher than things in your life. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.